I spent a lot of time in Faber's Fascination Arcade, though. When I moved here, you could play a video game for a quarter. And if I had, like, $2, that's eight video games. It was open all year long. It was one of the few places that stayed alive when the wintertime came. You're listening to Coney Island Stories, the oral history podcast from the Coney Island History Project. I'm Charles Denson, director of the Coney Island History Project. Welcome to Season 2 of Coney Island Stories, our podcast produced from oral histories in the History Project's archive. This season's theme is growing up in Coney Island through the decades from the 1930s to the 21st century. In Episode 6, we're sharing the stories of narrators who grew up here in the 1980s or grew up coming to Coney Island from nearby neighborhoods. Coney Island during the 1980s is best symbolized by Greek immigrant Dinos Federis' purchase of the 1920 Wonder Wheel, the amusement area's oldest continuously operating ride. The summer of 1983 was not a good time to buy a business. Many longtime operators were giving up and moving on, fleeing the area. But Dinos believed that Coney Island had a bright future and decided to follow his dream. After buying Ward's Kitty Park on the boardwalk in 1980, he was offered the opportunity to buy the Wonder Wheel for $250,000 from its original owners, and he said, you got it. His children asked him to reconsider, but he would have none of it. The sale also included the iconic Spookorama Dark Ride and the Carnival Games on Jones Walk. It was the beginning of Coney's newest attraction, Dino's Wonder Wheel Park, a family-owned business that is still expanding and thriving today. Another ray of hope in 1980s Coney Island was the Estella Development Corporation's plan to build low-rise attached homes on vacant lots slated for high-rise projects that were abandoned when the city went broke in the 1970s. One of the first home buyers told the New York Times in 1982 that, I've seen Coney Island go down, now it's my dream to watch it come up again. Estella developed or renovated nearly 1,000 single-family owner-occupied homes on city-owned land in the 1980s. Our first narrator, Siobhan Myers, grew up in Gravesend Houses in Coney Island's West End. Born in 1984, she recalls idyllic summer days at the beach and fun rides in Astroland. What stood out for her in contrast to the gritty and almost desolate streetscape was the sense of community and the strong family ties in the public housing projects that she and her cousins called home. Siobhan Myers is a photographer, visual artist, and storyteller. I grew up in Gravesend housing projects. My building was on 33rd and Canal, and my cousins lived in O'Dwyer's, which was literally three blocks away. And that is one block away from the beach. We spent our days at the beach over the summer, literally every day. My mother would gather all of us. We'd get a shopping cart. And this was when you can walk under the boardwalk. You can't do that anymore. But back then, you can just walk under the boardwalk. And she'd gather all the kids, all of my aunts and cousins, and we'd go walk under the boardwalk and stay on the beach from... 8 a.m. because back then you got there early so you can get a good spot and you got there before the sun was right above your head. We would stay out there until the sun went down and you couldn't see anything in front of you. Somehow, some way, no kid ever turned up missing. Nothing ever happened to anyone. We all played, had a great time. 
We played a lot of jump rope games, double dutch. That was a big deal. I don't even see that anymore. We would get a telephone wire and <laughs> just play. Like whoever found the longest telephone wire, there are no telephone wires now. Back then, you had telephone wires and you can get them really long and you'd get them from your house because everyone had them. And you just go outside and you play double dutch. We also spent a lot of time in Astroland, which is no longer there, which is horrible in my opinion. But Astroland was like, again, our backyard back then. Astroland, you really knew everyone that operated the rides. It was really like, uh, it was a community. They would hire the kids from the areas to work the rides and give them summer jobs. So, of course, when we'd go there, we'd know everyone there. So, you know, we didn't pay anything to get on the rides. You would just go and your friends would let you ride the rides and we'd spend our whole day there. Yeah. And the water flume, that was like the one water ride that was there. It was nothing crazy. It was just a water ride. There was one big dip. But as a kid, you get to know the ride. You get to know when you're going to make the turn and when you're supposed to put your hands up. And, you know, it was all just fun. It had a lot of character, too. You know, it wasn't polished and new and shiny, but there was character. And the people that took care of it, you knew they really cared about this stuff. The neighborhood was very different. When you'd ride the Astro Tower, it would take you all the way up and it would spin and it would give you this 360 view of Coney Island. But it was a this long pole and you'd get on and it would just turn so it would go all the way to the top and you would just get this view of all of Coney Island. And it wasn't a ride, but it was just a nice way of seeing the whole neighborhood from all the way up there. And Back then, 80s, 90s, Coney Island was very different because there were a lot of vacant lots. There were basically projects, few houses, few stores, and just vacant lots everywhere. There's a movie called The Warriors, and the scene when the train pulls in, when he gets out and he looks out and they're like, is this what we rushed back to? That's literally what Coney Island looked like. It's not what it is now. Now, there are condos and all these tall buildings and every space where there's a tall building now, there was a vacant lot there or a major business. It's like the 30s and on Mermaid Avenue. All of that was just vacant lot, one big vacant lot. There were a lot of community gardens back then because a lot of these spaces were just there and people would just say, okay, we're going to clean them up and use them. And if no one tells us anything, we're just going to stay here. So that was a cool thing. But um, yeah, it was very, it was very gritty. Could you tell us a little bit about Gravesend Houses and kind of the character of the place for you? Growing up in Gravesend, was it was rough because Gravesend... It was the project, so it was everything you hear about in songs. There were drugs, there was violence. If you didn't live there, you didn't go to Gravesend. My friends, <laughs> they would walk me back to my house, but they would stop at the corner of Gravesend. It's all right, call me when you get there. Like, no one wanted to walk through Gravesend. But for me, it was home. I didn't know anything other than that. But even within that, there was still community. So on my floor, I grew up on the fifth floor, we knew all of our neighbors. It was like, say, eight apartments. 
and everyone was there for years. Like when I moved out, there it was almost the same set of people that were there, minus like maybe two people, someone that passed away and someone that moved. So you grew up with these people. They saw you, pe- these people saw me when I was a baby and they saw me leave. So these were people that knew you. You knew their kids, you knew their stories. In the early 1980s, Coney Island's amusement area enjoyed an arts renaissance. Brooklyn artists Richard Egan and Philomena Moreno founded the Coney Island Hysterical Society because they felt hysterical that Coney Island was declining so rapidly. They won a grant from Nathan's Famous to paint a giant mural evoking the glory days of Steeplechase Park and calling for its return. Dick Ziggin, a Yale Drama School graduate, co-founded the not-for-profit Coney Island USA with fellow Yaleys and revived Coney Island's Mardi Gras as the Mermaid Parade. After the success of the parade, the Chamber of Commerce hired Egan and Ziggin to handle Coney Island publicity for the 1984 season. Their joint project was called Coney Island Events and sponsored the first all-New York City hip-hop festival and brought back swimsuit contests. Coney Island's homegrown art forms in the 1980s were breakdancing, graffiti, and rap. Our next narrator, Alito Hernandez, shares memories of learning to breakdance as a boy and the history of his crew in Coney Island. As a young teen, Ali auditioned for and won a role in choreographer Peter Gennaro's off-off-Broadway production Street Dreams, featuring dancers from the streets of New York City. My name's Freddy Ali Hernandez. Uh, They call me Alito, a.k.a. Alito, Fresh Kids. That's our crew that we started. About 1983, Fresh Kids was created on uh, 16th Street, Mermaid Avenue. I was around, I want to say, 11. It just took off from there. We were doing shows everywhere. We went to Washington Square Park and danced in front of everyone. We used to compete with Furious Rockers. We always competed with each other. There was only two crews in Coney Island. We were number two. I would, I would like to say number one, but Furious Rockers did a lot of touring, so I would never take that from them. They did. They were in Europe. They were all over. They were very famous. I grew up in, in 19th Street. I was, my parents moved to 19th Street when I was seven years old, and I became friends with the group in the neighborhood, Eddie Bandit. Eddie was the first one that showed me really how to break dance and encouraged me. He's the president of Fresh Kids. They were break till dawn when I met them. I was a baby. I, I was inspired by them. I wanted to do what they were doing, dancing, it was so inspiring. Eddie Bandit taught me, there was a guy named Chiba also from Furious Rockers that he taught us. We used to meet up in the schoolyard, on our Lady Sala schoolyard, and we used to break dance. But I was young, I was very young, 10 years old. I couldn't hang out much, couldn't stay out too late, you know? But I was trying to spend time with them so I could learn more and more, and, and I was so inspired. I got a part in off-Broadway play, and I was 13 years old, they took me out of school, they gave me a private tutor. They said, listen, you got to play, you got the part, you know. It was one of the best feelings ever, you know, at the age of 30. Yes, it was in 1984, okay. I was the main character. It was about a young guy. It was so, it's so crazy how this actually was my life. Following these older guys and trying to do what they were doing and getting into trouble. We got into a lot of trouble, you know. Tony Allen was rough. Growing up, that's a whole nother story. I can tell you that it wasn't easy, you understand? But we stuck together, you know what I mean? We always stuck together, like a family, you know? And we're still like a family. 
Where did you Maybe dance to Coney Island when you were? We were at the Polar Express, man. That was our stomping ground. We we forget about it. We were there day in day out, you know, getting in trouble to go to places, and we had our colors, you know, and our beads, and we walk into places. People know, oh shit, you know, these guys are gonna tear it up right now. So every time we got into a crowd, anywhere we went, they opened up the circle for us. Like we didn't have to do it anymore, you know. It was like these guys are gonna do their thing. And we did, you know, we had Joey Sapp, vice president. He's the best hand glides that you ever saw. Bapo, he was the best head spins you ever saw, you know. Uh, Bandit, he did the windmills. He's the one he mastered that. Trim mills, he came up with the trim mills, Bandit. He's the one that invented the trim mill. The 1990, Bandit invented the 1990, okay. And this is a history, you understand? A history I really want people to hear. People have to hear this history of Coney Island. I These are kids from all over Coney Island, and you kind of take them under your wing and train them. And, and Right. It's like how I started, you know? Hang out with the crew. You know what I mean? It wasn't like anybody could have been a fresh kid. You had to really, to be honest, everyone that came and joined us, we welcomed them with open arms, and we showed them how to break dance. We showed them. It was never any real problem. I mean, yeah, we used to get into fights and clubs. It had nothing to do with the dancing, you know what I mean? And it saved our lives, I think, you know? I think it, it really did. It really did, because we were doing positive things, and it made us live a positive life. You know, I tell you what, in Coney Island, I think it did. For some reason, it faded, but we were always doing it. And the only people that did it was us, you know? In these clubs over here, you know, dancing, we were actually the main crew, you know, from out here doing it. How many in your group? How many? Oh, there's around, we had around 20 members. But the main members, around 10. That's Eddie Bandit, the Prez, Joey Sat, Vice Prez, Cato was captain, uh, Papo, you had uh, myself, Alito. I used to write IA, Incredible Action. That's what I was when I was there. IA is like one of my tags, you know? Then you had JI, then you had the twins, Martin and Raymond. Then you had Skiddo, and then you had Roxy. Those were like the main 10 guys that were really fresh kids, original fresh kids. Yeah, I mean, we're very known. We're known from all the crews in New York City. They'll tell you we're fresh kids. You, name, you, you ask Rocksteady who we are, they'll tell you, oh, yes, we know fresh kids. Because we competed against them. We competed against Rocksteady in the Roseland. Okay, I don't remember exactly what year it was. I, I think it was 83, 85. We came in second place against Rocksteady. You know what I mean? As far as breakdancing, we're known. When we were young, we was, it was good. We could put the linoleum out and break dance if we want. But now you can't do things like that, and it's sad. It's just, just changed now. You know, times have changed in Coney Island. Still dancing. A little bit, yes, I dance. I'm Listen, I, I, all I got to do, it's, it's in the blood, man. We don't stop. Coney Island's hope for revival was set back by the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s, which led to a surge of violent crime in New York City. Crime was so prevalent that the city began a shuttle service to take Coney Island seniors on shopping trips to safer Brighton Beach. In this 2017 oral history, Jeffrey L. Wilson shares memories of moving to O'Dwyer Gardens, a public housing project in Coney's West End, in 1986. He also describes how Coney Island was different from his former neighborhood of Flatbush. His passion for playing video games began as a young teen at Faber's Fascination Arcade. Today, Wilson is managing editor of PC Magazine's Apps and Gaming team. So I was 12 years old when I landed in uh, O'Dwyer Gardens. I lived there from 86 to roughly 2006 or so, about 20 years. And uh, 
it's been a lot down there in Coney Island, you know? It, it's uh, full of projects, and eventually townhouses started springing up. And when I got there, I was happy because I had my own bedroom for the first time. But it was so different because the apartments we lived in in Flatbush were all about three or four stories tall. And I ended up in a building that was 16 floors. So just getting used to the sheer number of people, that to me was probably the biggest change of living in Coney Island. Lots of people in a small space. There are lots of abandoned streets and lots and lots of rabid dogs just roaming the street. I remember one time I went to uh, John Dewey High School and I was walking home one day and I was crossing Neptune Avenue and it's a pack of like three to four dogs just, just mangy looking and drooling. They started chasing me. And one swiped at my pants, ripped a hole in my pants, and I just booked it <laughs> down Surf Avenue and ran into a store. And that was kind of indicative. There was lots of blight back then. And that's changed a lot in the last 25, 30 years. I spent a lot of time at Faber's Fascination Arcade, though. I always had a love for video games, and I was kind of a broke kid. It's an expensive hobby, and you have no money, so it's hard to actually engage with the hobby. But that's where Faber's came in. When I moved here, you could play a video game for a quarter, something I couldn't do back home. And if I had, like, $2, that's eight video games. When I first started going there in the late 80s, it was a mix of mostly pinball machines and your traditional coin-op machines like Miss Pac-Man and Asteroids and things like that. I have lots of memories of just laughing with my friends, fist fights because people would try to rob you and find inside fate because they knew you had money if you're going into our arcade for the most part. And it's mostly warm memories of hanging with my friends after school and on weekends, and just doing what teenagers do, you know, argue and laugh. That was on Stillwell and Surf, across from the subway station. One of the first things you would see when you get out, and plus it had brilliant, lit-up signage. It wasn't neon, I believe it was all just bulbs, like small, small bulbs, and it was just flash all the time. And it was open all year long. It was one of the few places that stayed alive when the wintertime came. It's lots of police interaction when you're a young person in the projects. And I remember the random searches, but I remember a few really tense situations. Uh, I remember once I was waiting for a friend in his building. It was, you know, Dwyer Gardens, there were six buildings. I lived in building five, lived in building, uh, I think, four. It was snowing outside, and not to date myself, but I was waiting for him to come downstairs so we can go buy cassettes from Sam Goody. I was waiting in his lobby, and the cops approached, and I see them walking towards the lobby. And I was like, okay, I could just book it right now, but look guilty. I could stand here, I'm not doing anything wrong, and just open the door for them. So I opened the door for them. And he asked what I was doing here. And I said, oh, I'm waiting for my friend to come downstairs. And he said, do you live here? I was like, no, I live in the building next door. And I pulled out my ID very slowly, showed him my ID, looked at my ID, looked at me. He said, you can't loiter here. I was like, I'm not loitering. It's snowing outside. I'll ring his doorbell right now. And he confirmed that he's coming downstairs. And they decided not to do that. Slammed me into the wall, said I was loitering, and brought me down to the 60th precinct. 
And I spoke to some other police officer. They said, you can't, you can't loiter in these buildings. I was like, I wasn't loitering. And so he just, just let me go. But yeah, that's one of my most vivid memories of interacting with the police in a project. So it was that, that tense interaction. I didn't come to the amusement center very often, but I always came opening day when I was a kid. Because, you know, Coney Island's coming back to life. Everything besides favors closed down for the wintertime. And plus, people were coming from all over the city to Coney Island. And it was almost a fashion competition at some points. People were getting really dressed up to come down to eat hot dogs and go to the beach. It wasn't like like it was maybe a generation ago. People were coming in suits. But people were getting dressed up in their best, like, you know, I guess it would be business casual stuff. Or just come out with their, you know... Their fresh Jordans or their crisp new Chicago Bulls hat. I didn't really get wrapped up into all that. I liked observing more than actually participating. And sometimes that will lead to friction because people will come out fairly deep with their crews, especially when Coney Allen had a long-standing beef with the kids from the Marlboro Projects, which are not that far away, maybe a stop or two on a train. And, uh, you know... We had beef at a high school, beef in the streets, and everyone came down to Coney Island on opening day. So you always prepared for a potential rumble. So people were carrying hammers, like actual construction hammers, sometimes box cutters, because like, knives were illegal. We never really used them. It was more like a scare tactic in case someone got too rowdy. But yeah, opening day memories of pretty, pretty clothing and potential rumbles. In the 1980s, Horace Bullard, the wealthy Harlem-born owner of the Kansas fried chicken chain, spent millions of dollars buying Coney Island property to build a new and grander steeplechase park. He had investors lined up, as well as the support of the public, the media, and elected officials. He had everything he needed except luck. His decade-long efforts kept Coney Island in the public eye when many had written it off, with newspapers blaring headlines like, Chicken King Lays Golden Egg on Coney Island. In 1989, Bullard hired Battaglia, a renowned amusement park design firm, to design the new park. The Battaglia plan for the three-level park paid homage to Coney's past. It incorporated the parachute jump and revived past attractions from Luna Park, Dreamland, and the original steeplechase. Bullard remained confident that his plan would come to fruition in the 1990s until a recession and Mayor Rudolph Giuliani ended his dream by canceling his lease. In this 2017 interview, Eric Safian, an architect, recalls growing up in Coney Island's Brightwater Towers, a high-rise co-op building overlooking the aquarium. His parents were political refugees who emigrated from Ukraine when he was a toddler. In 2011, Safian designed the renovation of the boardwalk's legendary Ruby's Bar and Grill, which he calls his childhood temple by the sea. My family moved here from Odessa in the Ukraine. We came here in 78 on like a political refugee status. Like a lot of other Russian Jewish families, we settled in Brighton Beach and then eventually in in Brightwater Towers. So I came here when I was about three and a half years old. We moved to the Brightwater Towers. 
I must have been six or seven by then. My parents still live in the same apartment. You know, so I grew up on the 18th floor, and this was across the street from the aquarium. So one of the memories was you always get to watch the dolphin shows for free off the balcony and hear the kind of cheesy music vibrating between the two buildings, between the two towers. And I would go to Coney Island all the time as a kid and then as a teenager. Me and my good friend Constantine would celebrate our July 4ths and our mermaid parades over there and always hung out on the beach a couple of bays away. So it was definitely um, you know, just part of my experience growing up as a kid. I actually always would go to Ruby's. Uh, it was one of my favorite places because it was just a jackpot of random characters and freaks and had a cool atmosphere. So I remember I was hanging out there since you know I was 14, 15 years old. So yeah, that was, I guess, growing up in Coney Island, kind of be walking around at night. I guess this would have been in the 80s where it didn't always seem like the safest place to be, but what did we know? It's been really interesting to see Coney Island develop recently because this time it seems like it's truly developing for real and not one of its sort of head fakes. You know, over the last couple of decades where Disney was going to take over and then the fried chicken empire had a grand scheme for it and every like five or ten years there was like a big plan and so it's really interesting to see that actually happening now even though of course there's pros and cons as far as all the development and characters involved with that and, and including the city itself. On the one hand you see a lot of the great rides come back like the um Central Amusements, they came in and they put a lot of money in and rebuilt these rides. And if you look at old photos of Coney Island, they're sort of trying to stay true to that, which is a great thing. And these guys are ride builders. Mm -hmm. They're an Italian ride building company, so they know what they're doing. And then to see all the other stuff pop up, like all the commercial and retail. But first I felt a little mixed because a question I, I always struggled with is, do you embrace the gentrification of Coney Island and sort of welcome all the Johnny Rockets and the TGIFs and the, the super duper candy store or whatever it's called? Or do you, because in a way, I grew up in the sort of decrepit version of Coney Island and there's sort of like a mystery to that. I think this is the way it kind of needs to be. It was always a reinvention of itself so eventually it had to happen one way or the other if i were to bring back something would would be the shooting gallery which was one of my most memorable experiences as a kid it was one of the first things along surf avenue before entering in to astroland it was one of these old sort of western saloon style air-activated rifle places that you put in a quarter and you get like 20 shots and you hit like a little tin ring and then the piano guy plays for five seconds or the frog jumps up or the squirrel goes up and down and it was just like this whole little corner of bizarre and wonderful animal life and 
Western saloon-themed memorabilia. And you remember the sounds of the air and the reaction of, of the bunnies or the frogs or the, the piano guy again. It was like just one of those childhood sounds and visions that are totally kind of sealed in. In the late 1980s, the city finally recognized the historic importance of the Cyclone, Wonder Wheel, and Parachute Jump, and all were designated official New York City landmarks. A television advertisement for Astroland's 1988 season heralded the new $1 million breakdance ride and the sensational convoy ride for kids. A wristband that lets you access all the park's rides costs $10.90. Our last narrator, Zora Saeed, is a poet and translator who was born in Afghanistan and immigrated to Brooklyn with her family as a child in the 1980s. She grew up in the close-knit Uzbek Turkestani community on Ocean Avenue in Sheepset Bay, roamed Neptune Avenue in Brighton Beach, and enjoyed family outings to Astroland. So for me, poetry was that place-making, self-making. I can't write poetry about a lot of other things I realize. There are certain things I write poetry about. That movement of space between Brighton Beach and Sheepshead Bay, where me and my friends used to play, Manhattan Beach, you know, all those places. The boardwalk that stretches all the way to Coney Island, Astroland, all of that. Originally, we came from Afghanistan. I was born in Jalalabad in the eastern province of Afghanistan. And then we came to Brooklyn, where there was a small Turkestani community, where Turkic people from Afghanistan, we had a community center here in Brooklyn, and that's how we came here. So there's many layers of Turkic people in Sheepshead Bay. So for us, it was very comfortable to come in the 80s and settle here. So I grew up in that post-World War II, post-war buildings on Ocean Avenue, where you have all those same six-floor buildings all around. So most of the supers were Turkic. So they were either Afghan Uzbek or Tatar or Turkish. So we'd be able to play all along Ocean Avenue in these different homes. Those basements became really fun places for us to explore, play hide and seek, and just be kids. And I spoke three different languages when I first came. Of course, baby versions of those three languages, Farsi, Uzbek, and Arabic. And when none of my languages worked, I used to act out in my kindergarten. And then I started learning English, had ESL classes, had the most wonderful teachers. And I think that's where I first learned to read. So for the first time, I remember understanding the very first story was about a winter in some place and spring was coming. So the snow was melting, the ice was melting and it just felt like that's how I came to the English language. Like it just, all of the things that were hard or difficult or unreachable just started melting. And then this beautiful place opened up for me. And that's when I knew I could, that was the very first story I understood from beginning to end. And it really stayed with me. So it's a very emotional connection I had with my elementary school. And they really took me in, took my brother and uh, later, who was younger, in, and, and it was like a small family schoolhouse. It was really a beautiful experience. Even if there weren't too many Afghans in the class, it, I never felt it. I never felt different or unwelcome. We had uh, friends who were in Neptune Avenue. Neptune Avenue was really three buildings that were pretty much a lot of Afghan Uzbeks, 
or Uzbeks who Turkish Uzbeks. That's where we played, and all the doors would be open, and you'd run from different door to different door because they're all like somehow related or like part of the same community. And so if you got thirsty and you just need to jump in from outside to get something, you just walk into anyone's house and just grab something from the fridge and run out. And it was like always like piles of shoes in the front door because you take your shoes off, you go in, you come out. There's always like crayons, stumpy crayons everywhere in the windows. So if you needed something to write with, <laughs> you had the stumpy crayons. I don't know why there were so many crayons. There's also the bungalows, right? The old Brighton Beach bungalows. And I remember some of our friends, family friends and kids lived in those bungalows. So we'd get to play in between. My, uh, there's nothing more fun than running through the maze of bungalows in Brighton Beach. One of the, the uh, highlights of play when we were younger. Because you could go through any alley. And so if you're playing tag or like monster or whatever it is, you just had a lot of choices to run in and out. And it was a lot of fun. I don't remember anyone saying get off my property or don't come in or don't do this. So Coney Island Astralin was like the best place to go. That was why we got good grades. That's why you worked hard. So forget Disneyland. That was probably impossible. But Coney Island Astralin was definitely where you went. And then afterwards, you go to the beach and everyone was having barbecues and people would stay from morning till night. And those barbecues were, people were very welcoming. It was just a lot of fun. And I still remember that ramp when you get off the train and you get off at Coney Island and then there's that long ramp. That's like the longest ramp when you're trying to get to actually Coney Island Astralin because you're like, when will this ramp end as a kid to get there? And then the way back is always fun because you're always filled with cotton candy and toys and you probably have, you know, sunstroke <laughs> from being out there too long. Thank you for listening to Coney Island Stories, the Coney Island History Project podcast. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. The oral histories were conducted by Cara Baptiste, Charles Denson, Lila Goldstein, and Trisha Vita between 2017 and 2021. If you have a question or would like to record an oral history, contact us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our website. Stay tuned for the next episode of Coney Island Stories, growing up in the 1990s. This program is supported in part by Humanities New York, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities.